Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And we're in this section in Matthew chapter 2, where we've been considering what we should consider a wise approach to life to be. And we're using as an example the story of the wise men as depicted in the early chapters of Matthew, where they are seen to be seeking the Messiah. A familiar story, and think about what it can teach us. And last time we discovered that a wise way to have an approach to life is like them to seek the Messiah. And then when you seek him and find him, you really need to think about the ways you can get to know him. So the first thing we looked at last time is that you can know him and know him better by finding him in God's word. But a quick reminder, if you're new here, please remember that every time there's one of these podcasts, you can go into the episode notes and copyright free, you'll find a full transcript of what I've said, plus lots of links of ways you can connect to other teaching and discipleship resources I've created. But other than that, we're going to drop back into the text of Matthew that we're looking at, and I'll see you at the back end just to update you and say bye-bye. Okay friends, welcome back. And we're picking up where we left off this time and we're just going to drop straight into the text and see what it tells us. Picking up where we finished last time at verse 10 and reading the first half of verse 11, which tells us, when they saw the star, and this of course is talking about the wise men, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. So we're going to pause right there for a second because I'd like to make a couple of observations. You see, there are several things going on in this passage. Well, some of them might disappoint you if you get your theology from what we in the UK called a nativity play, or maybe you get your understanding of this story from the front of a Christmas card. These events actually didn't happen the day or a few days after he was born. As a matter of fact, the implication is probably that they happened many months after he was born. For one thing, it tells us that Joseph and Mary were now living in a house. They're no longer in a stable. And for another, it calls Jesus a word that actually means child, not the word that meant baby or infant used previously. Experts say he might have been as old as much as two years old at this point. And as a matter of fact, when we get into the next part of this passage we see that Herod goes and kills all the children under two years old remember that so you may remember I asked you to take note a few days ago when we covered verse 7 that Herod secretly asked the wise men when the star first appeared so that suggests to many a passing of time since its first appearance And by the slaughter of children that he ordered, we can see that in a sense he was wanting to cover all his bases by having all the children under two killed, which suggests at this time some considerable period of time has passed. Furthermore, in Luke's account of these events, we are told that Joseph and Mary 
offered the sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves and a pigeon, and that was an offering of poor people. So some expositors have come to this message and said, well, obviously at this point, they hadn't been given any gifts yet. They hadn't got any gold. So this was all before those events. At any rate, you could go on listing all these ideas, but overall these seem to indicate that this did not happen, certainly not in the day or immediately after Jesus' birth. And I agree with most of the commentators who say that these events were sometime after his birth. But what they do tell us that the wise men do, that very clearly it says they worship him. Now, the Greek word that being translated worship for us in the modern translation actually means they prostrated themselves before him. They bowed down or lay down before him and worshipped him. And actually, the contained within that word used to describe worship is a sense of submission and honour. And that, of course, in reality, is the true sense of true worship. Just as then, in this case and now, it should involve a degree of submission. So another suggestion I would like to make is a wise way, a wise way to approach the Saviour is the same as they did. If you're seeking the Lord and you come upon him, then a wise thing to do is to worship him. But do remember that worship at some level should involve submitting to him and honouring him. Now, if you were to go to Bethlehem today, a tour guide would probably take you to the spot. I've not been there, but I've spoken to people who have. He'll take you to the spot and say, this is the actual spot where Jesus was born. Now, that's not always the case when you go in these church or Christian type tours of Israel. But this is one of the most authentic places and spots in all of Israel. For one thing, we know for a fact that a church was built on this spot by Constantine somewhere around 330 AD. And there was a a tradition that went back way before that, that that was the place where Jesus was born. Now, people who have been there have told me that as you walk up to that church that's built on that site, in order to get into this area of the church, in order to get into it, there's a door that's literally carved out of stone. And you have to actually physically stoop down to walk through the door. And then you go into a very old ancient chapel space and there's a wooden floor and there's a spot where they remove part of the wooden floor. And you can look down and see beyond that under some ceramic floor tile type of things, an area that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years before the church on top was built. And they say right beneath that spot, which is actually right in front of the altar in that chapel, for want of a better word, is the very spot where Jesus was worshipped. So to get to it, you have to go down some stairs, go under the main church building above it, into almost like a cave area, only 12 metres long and about 4 metres wide. And at that point, they have placed a gold star on the floor. And they say that is the place where the star is placed is where Jesus was born. But what's fascinating is to get to that point, you've got to bow down. And it's interesting because that's really significant because when you come before the Lord, you really ought to do that, if not physically, certainly spiritually. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, when talking about the spiritual life, said, present your bodies as living sacrifices. When you submit yourself to him, you are to honour him and worship him. And this is precisely what they did. 
And anyone who goes to church in the right frame of mind does that to a degree even today. Around the world, usually on a Sunday morning, Christians, in a sense, replay this story by they too presenting themselves before the Messiah and wanting to honour him by being in his presence and by worshipping him. This is a form of worship that in a sense is linked all the way back to these wise men because it is what God would want us to do in acknowledging him. And hopefully, if we also are seeking his face in order to obey him and wish to obey him, we would do this also. There is a story, probably an apocryphal story, of our current Queen's father, George VI, who shortly after becoming king, walked into a meeting room with a group of his old friends and the minute he walked into the room they all stood up and he said sit down sit down take your seats gentlemen I count you as personal friends then jokingly he said I'm not the lord you know to which one of his friends replied no sir if you were we would have not stood up we would have fallen to our knees so you see the way you honour the Lord in a spiritual sense is a bit like dropping to your knees. It's a symbol of the attitude of approaching the Lord. I have one more suggestion to make and it's tucked away in this verse 11 where it tells us that they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. So how did these men upon arrival observe the birth of Christ What was their approach? Well, they bowed down in submission, they worshipped him, and they gave him gifts. Now, there's all kind of speculation about these gifts. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about how many wise men there were? Now, your immediate answer for everyone is three. And I may have said that inadvertently in the preparation of these studies. But there's no actual indication in the text that there were three. That speculation comes from the fact that in the text it lists these three types of gifts. Some early traditions actually say there were three wives there also, so there could have been six. Now I don't see that the text suggests that or signposts that in any way, but there definitely could have been more than three. There could have been a dozen for all we know. We don't actually know. Another question is, where is it that says these wise men were kings? Nothing is said in this passage or anywhere else in the Bible that they were kings. They were wise men, that is all we know. I've seen a school nativity play, and it's very common in the UK, where there are three kings, three wise men, three shepherds, three of everybody, all visiting, all worshipping. But we don't really know how many wise men there were. But we do know that they gave gifts. And it's intriguing to try and to understand what the meaning of those various gifts was. Well, for example, gold, of course, is the gift that at that time you would have given a king. And frankincense was the gift that would was a substance that was used by a priest because they used this sweet perfume of frankincense on sacrifice to make a pleasing aroma unto the Lord, as it says in the Old Testament. And Jesus, of course, is our priest. And then myrrh. Myrrh was the gift that was given to a family when someone died. It was actually used as a sort of ancient embalming fluid in the sense that it was used to dress the body so it would not smell unpleasantly too soon. And of course, we understand that Jesus is our sacrifice So by giving these gifts, the text is saying that Jesus is the one who is born a king. 
is our priest and he offers his sacrifice, but his sacrifice is the one in that he is the one who came to die and bring us to God and become our sacrifice. And he will return one day to rule again as king. So there is indeed some significance in these gifts. But my point here, they don't arrive at the feet of the Messiah and just have an emotional moment. And that seems to be what so much of Christianity is in danger of becoming these days. Lots of people, in my estimation, go to church expecting to feel good and to have an emotional experience. Now, I'm not opposed to enjoying a time of worship. I'm not opposed to that at all. I do experience that myself. But if that's all you have when you go to church, then what you are doing, what is occurring, is superficial at best. But also, they didn't come to just have a moment of theological contemplation or even insight. There was a very practical reaction. They responded to their worship by giving him something and they gave him gifts. Now I submit to you that the wise way to live our Christian lives is if we're receiving the great gift of him as our saviour and we worship him as our saviour, then the response at some level should also include the giving of our gifts. So what are our gifts going to be? I wonder if any of you out there at the moment have some gold in your pocket. Seems unlikely in this day and age. Maybe some nickel coins, but no gold these days. And what about myrrh? Anyone got any myrrh in their back pocket or in the boot of their car? I doubt it. I suppose it's even less likely that you've got any frankincense in your purse or wallet today. Probably not. So what would I recommend, what do I suggest this text in the modern context is suggesting that we should give? Well, the answer to that is we should give of ourselves. I quoted a moment ago from Romans chapter 6, verse 12, which actually says, I beseech you, brethren, yield yourself to God, submit yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your body as instruments of righteousness. Now, Paul uses the very same word to present or to submit yourself in a word which means you are offering your life as a living sacrifice. That's the gift God wants. To put it simply, he wants you to live the life of a living sacrifice to him. And that is the appropriate response to what should happen after you've sought the Messiah and found him. The sacrifice that you'd make should be one of putting him first, handing over your gifts, your talents, your efforts as a sacrifice of effort and praise to serve him and his kingdom. When it comes to gift giving, the only gift is the one that is of any real value is you giving yourself of yourself to him because that truly is an act of proper worship. All right then, let me sum this all up. What's this passage teaching? Well, I think if I try and sum it all up, I think the message that it is telling us that this, first of all, is the fulfillment of a prophecy. That's what Matthew is trying to get across. Jesus is seen to be born in Bethlehem and the wise men are seen to seek him out by understanding the scriptures, by understanding the word and interpreting it, and they find him and they do three things. They seek him out, find him, and as a response to finding him, 
they worship him, and they give of him their gifts. So I make the simple observation that we should seek him, and when we find him, we should worship him and give of our giftings. And I would like to say that that's a really good way to approach the Messiah. And that's a really good way to live your life, to spend it seeking the Messiah, if you will. Then when you find him, by worshipping and making a sacrifice of giving yourself as a response to the gift he has given you of salvation. Now to finish this passage, I just want to for a moment drop the story back into the context of the whole book in which it is written. Because you know we're going to be going through the rest of this Gospel of Matthew over the next four months or so. So let's talk about the whole book. Why did Matthew choose this part of the story to put it in his account, his Gospel account of the life of Jesus? Mark didn't include it. John didn't include it. The answer is, and it's not hard to see, is because like I said in the introduction of this series, one of the things that Matthew definitely wants to do, in fact he probably harps on about it a bit, is the fact that he wants his audience, who of course are Christians of Jewish background, to see Jesus Christ as the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. We've already seen how his being born a virgin was a fulfilment of those Old Testament prophecies. And one of the things that Matthew is choosing to do in the incidences in the life of Christ that he selects is to ensure that they can all be seen through the lens, if you like, as a fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament. And you're going to hear me say this a lot if you track with me through the Gospel of Matthew over the next few months. It is indeed one of its major themes. Another thing worth noting is when it comes to worship, it's not wise men from Jerusalem that seek him. It's not the local civic leaders, nor is it even the local religious leaders. And it's certainly not Herod, the one with power and authority. No, the wise men who seek him come from far away. They're not from Galilee. They're not from Jerusalem. They're described as coming from the east, from far away. But there's another underlying theme here, a motif, if you like. In the Gospel of Matthew, he is seen to come to his own, yes, but in the words of John, his own receive him not. Instead, it's Gentiles from far, far away who seek him and find him. Someone once said this far more eloquently than I could when they said, there are still those people today who would gladly destroy Jesus because they see him as the one who interferes with their lives. They wish to do what they like, and because Christ will not let them do what they like, they seek to kill him, they seek to destroy him. There are those today that are so interested in just trying to have fun that Jesus Christ means nothing to them. And when they're confronted with them, it angers them and they seek to destroy him. There will always be some people who seek to do what they like in life, and there will also always, thank God, be some people who will dedicate their lives in trying to find the Messiah and to do what he did, to do what Jesus did, to be like him. And they actually dedicate their lives to trying to live that way. But surely anyone who really seeks and finds the Messiah, the Saviour, and realises the love of God in Christ that he had for us, must be lost in wonder, lost in love, lost in praise. 
I'm simply suggesting that if you're really seeking, when you do find him, you will want to worship. You will want to give him gifts of yourself. The promise of the Gospel, Matthew, will continue to be revealed to us and it is that those who look for Jesus will indeed find him and those who truly find him will worship him and those who worship him will worship him with a sacrifice of praise by offering their lives in service to him. I recently came across a little observation, a sort of line that popped up in a social media feed I had. I don't normally like those sort of things, but this one caught my eye. It said this, Happy moments, praise God. Difficult moments, seek God. Quiet moments, worship God. Painful moments, trust God. And every moment, thank God. You know what? That sounds to me like a really wise way to live your life. Okay, there we are, friends. That's the end of three days we've spent in that interesting little passage. I hope you find it interest dragging it out of the context of Christmas in which it is normally placed. It sits very well in and of itself, I really do think. Tomorrow we'll be continuing this journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to just think about what this baby can really teach us. But that's it for today. So we'll pause there and I'll just remind you, if you want, there are lots of resources and additional teaching and also some discipleship courses that I've made available online. Always free, always in the public domain without copyright for you to use with my blessing in whatever way you want. And just a little request, if you are finding these studies helpful, then why not consider sharing a link on social media so that other people may be encouraged to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. But that being said, I'd just like to say a very special thank you for all the thousands of you who have committed to follow along in the Bible Project daily podcast. It so encourages me to know that there are so many of you out there who are making this part of their daily lives. So I do hope you'll join with me again tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me, but it'll be whatever day you open up the Bible Project daily podcast and listen to the next episode as it appears in your feed. But thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you again very soon I trust. Bye bye for now.